0: So I had, uh, had a really, really great weekend um, yesterday. Uh, yesterday was Saturday, and Saturday for my family is is it's kind of our Sabbath day. We take a day just to rest. We take a day to enjoy being together, to worship the Lord, and and just take some slow time, you know. And so, I had this moment yesterday that was kind of unexpected. I I was sitting in my front yard. I was reading a book, and uh, my oldest son walks up with a rope draped around his shoulder, and he's like, hey, Dad, can you get a ladder so I can climb this tree? And he points towards a tree in our front yard where the lowest branch is like higher than I can reach standing up. And so, like any good father, I said, absolutely, I will get you a ladder. So, I got him a ladder stood up against the tree, and I thought I would be able to just watch him climb while I sat back and read my book and just be excited for his sense of adventure, but I I started to get a little nervous. I'm like, man, if he falls, I'm gonna feel so bad. And then it hit me. Like, wait a minute, I I love to do what he's doing too. And I have a bag full of climbing gear that never gets used anymore. How fun would it be if I helped him? So I ran inside, I got all my climbing stuff and I brought it out and I put Elijah in a climbing harness and I put on a climbing harness and then of course his younger brother comes over and he's like, whoa, what are you guys doing? I want in on this. So I had to make him a harness. I didn't have one big enough for him. And I get him hooked up and I get them all set with like a, a set of like webbing and carabiners that they can like hook onto tree branches so that we can go as high as we want. And we just had this Little mini adventure right in our front yard. And before we knew it, my four year old daughter comes over and she's like, Wait, dad, I want to do this. And I had to draw the line somewhere. I'm like, Man, my four year old (laughs) daughter just don't know that I feel good about it. So I said, Dahlia, I love your sense of adventure. And I was like, When you get a little bit older, we'll do this. And before I know it, I'm 30 foot up in this tree with my two boys, like just feeling this sense of adventure with them. And, you know, it just brought me so much joy. And why was it that that moment brought me so much joy as a dad? Well, it, it's simply because anybody, any parent can tell you this. Any parent, there's so much joy when you begin to see your kids loving the things that you love. When you begin to see like this, these aspects of who you are starting to come alive in your own kids, man, it just awakens this joy. I saw this adventurous and wild spirit in Elijah and in Torin and in Daya, and it just brought me so much joy because I went, oh, I recognize that, I have that too, and oh, it was awesome. And as we look in the book of James this morning, what we're gonna see is James is gonna show us that that's not just true of earthly parents. Like, that is true of our Heavenly Father as well. That when he begins to see the things that he loves coming alive in his kids, it brings him so much joy. And so, you know, we've been in James for a few weeks now, and the book started where we kind of looked at this idea that James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing this letter to the scattered church because they've been scattered because of persecution. And remember, we've kind of had this idea of going, he is like that trusted friend that's sending you the letter to say the things to encourage you, even the things that sometimes you don't want to hear. And so he talked with us about how we endure hardship and how we endure suffering and how we live into this crazy moment that we're in in history with keeping our eyes on Jesus. And then a couple weeks ago, Brandon continued to walk through chapter one, and he talked about the importance of not just hearing the Word, but doing the Word. And today, James, James is going to continue that kind of line of thinking, talking about both hearing and doing when it comes to the Word of God. And what he's going to lay out for us is kind of this idea that, that what, to describe what brings our Heavenly Father joy. That as we think about hearing and doing, what are the things that bring our Father joy that He loves to see in us? And so we're going to start in verse 26 and just 27, two short verses that pack a whole lot in. So let's listen to this. They say, James writes this in verse 26, "...those who consider themselves religious, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress." and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord here in in James. And so James is gonna make this statement, he's gonna say, if you consider yourself to be religious, and he's gonna give these qualifications of what it means to be religious, we gotta pause just for a minute. He's gonna lay out three things that we're gonna unpack, but before we can get to those, we have to understand what James means by this word religious and religion. It's this Greek word, thraiskia, and it's really interesting because this word is only found three times in the entire New Testament. You know, this book that so many mistakenly think is a book about a religion or a book about how to be religious, that that word is only found three times in the entire New Testament. And you know, it wasn't even necessarily meant in a Christian sense. It wasn't necessarily meant as a Christian word. The word religion was almost, honestly, it was a Greek word that kind of described what pagans did when they went to the temple. Okay, this word religion denoted kind of this reverencing or worshiping of a god. Uh, it kind of captured the outward expression of worship that someone would engage in. And today, what's what's ironic is that we read this, and today you don't find many people in our culture that would go, yeah, I'm so religious, because that kind of doesn't feel good to us, right? Mm-hmm. Most people would actually say something like this, yeah, I'm not real religious, I'm spiritual. And this is kind of the, the language that we like to use. but. Ironically, what you see is that even in the Greek language, there was a word for spiritual. And It was the word Eusebio, and these two words, they actually went together. You see, they were a, if you were a spiritual person, the external expression of your spirituality was called religion. The two were intertwined. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what your spirituality is. If you have an external expression of that spirituality, that is this word religion. It doesn't matter if your spirituality leads you to, you know, sit at Radnor Lake here in Nashville and connect with nature. That's an external act, that's religion. It doesn't matter if it's lighting a candle for a moment of silence to meditate and reflect, that is a religious act based on spirituality. Doesn't matter what your external act is, if it's based by this desire to be spiritual, it is a religious act. And what James is going to show, he's gonna contrast this idea of outward religious acts or religious expressions of spirituality. He's gonna contrast that with that which actually brings our Father joy, that which pleases God our Father. Now, here's the thing. Even though we don't like the word religious, American Christianity is just replete with outward actions of religion, right? I mean, we are like the golden corral of religious options. I mean, you walk in, it's like this smorgasbord set. It's like, man, if you want to be you want to know what religious action looks like? Well, it can be going to church on Sunday morning. At least it used to be. Now that's kind of not an option and as much anymore, you know. But it's like, hey, you can go to church on Sunday morning. Hey, you can read your Bible every day. Hey, you can follow this teacher on whatever social media platform. You can listen to their podcasts over and over again. You can read a plethora of devotional books. You can have uh, Hillsong or Bethel on your iTunes playlist and listen to that while you drive down the road. It's like, man, you name it, there is no shortage of external expressions of religion in American Christianity. You know, but what James is going to argue is that all of these external religious acts, you can engage in any one of these, or all of them, without your heart actually being fully engaged. You can go through the external behavior without your heart being there. You know, James is building on his continued thought of hearing and doing. He's continuing to build on this idea that we have to hear the word and put it into practice. He's building on the foundation that his older brother laid. In the Gospel of John chapter 14, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will obey my commands. What James is gonna say is the true litmus test of your religious activity is found in obedience at the core of your heart and who you are. And so what is pure religion that brings our Father joy? He's gonna talk about three things that are really important. He's going to talk about what we do with our speech, our tongues. He's going to talk about what we do with those who are helpless, those who are in distress. He's going to talk about uh, being unstained by the world. And these three things are really important. And he is not trying to give us a comprehensive definition of religion. It's not his goal here. Instead, what he's trying to do is help us see that, you know, in the absence of these things, or if these things are, you know, when, when you don't have these three things in place, that your religion actually becomes worthless, or vain. He says, you deceive your own heart. And so, what are these three things, and why do they matter? So, the first one here is this idea of taming the tongue. He says, if you claim to be religious, but you can't reign in your tongue, then you're, you deceive yourself. You deceive your own heart, and your religion is worthless, why does this matter so much to James? You know, the reality is we're gonna see James come back to this idea of our, the tongue, our speech, over and over again. He started it with Brandon preaching, where he said, hey, be quick to listen and slow to speak. He's talking about the, the power of your words. He's going to hit this over and over and over again. In chapter 3, he's going to talk about the importance of teaching and false teachers and the damage that they can do. In chapter 3, verse 9, he's going to say, man, with our tongues, we praise our Father and we curse human beings who are created in God's image. Out of the same mouth come blessing and curse. This should not be the power of our tongue. It has it reveals something that's going on in our heart. You know, Jesus himself talked about this in Matthew in chapter 12, verse 34, he says, "'Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks.'" You see, what you do with your words reveals something that's in your heart. And over and over again, James is gonna go, "'Hey, rein in your tongue.'" He depicts it like it's this wild animal out of control. He says, "'Harness it, rein it in, tame it.'" You've got to get your tongue under control. And you know, I'm convinced today that if he were writing to us, he would say, "'Hey, if you cannot rein in your tongue, or you're typing, then your religion is worthless. Because, guys, the reality is we use the power of words to tear down not just verbally anymore, but we're doing it online on a daily basis. Man, do we wonder why we live in a nation that is just fraught with division? Think about the power of careless words and what they do to destroy and what they do to tear down. See, what we do with our words really, really matters, you know. Jesus is going to say, hey, what you do with your words, whether it's written or spoken, reveals something about what's in your heart. He'll say, you know, guys, the, the vulgarity that you engage in, the vulgar jokes you laugh at or that you tell, the, the coarseness of your language. He'll talk about gossip. The New Testament is just full of, like, man, stay away from gossip, tearing people down behind their backs. It's destructive, slander. Talking poorly about people, whether in front of their face or when they're not listening, it is destructive. Deception, using your words to lie or to deceive, it is destructive and all of it reveals something about what's in your heart to the point where James says, hey, I don't care how many religious acts you engage in, if you go into a worship service and praise the Lord and then walk out and tear somebody else down with your tongue, whether online or in person, your religious act was worthless. He says, it's, you might as well be worshiping an idol. It's vain. It's nothing. Guys, this, the value of our words is so important. You know, in reality, these two verses, 26 and 27, they kind of function as a thesis statement for the rest of the book. So I'm not going to deep dive on any one of these things, <clears throat> but what we see is that James is calling us back to the character of God, our Father. Remember, this is about what does our Father like to see? In verse 18, James gives us this little glimpse of what he believes is central to the character of our Father God. So in verse 17, he says, if you look back in chapter chapter one in verse 17, he says, man, every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above. And he talks about how he doesn't change at all. And then in verse 18, he says, our Father chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to give us birth through what? Through the word of truth. Guys, God's words matter. It was with God's words that he spoke creation into being. It was with God's word that he brought life. It was God's word that became flesh in John chapter 1. God's words have power, and God's words matter. And as his kids, our words matter too. We have to choose what will we do with our tongue, what we do with our words. Build up or tear down. And so then James is going to keep going. He says, hey, what you do with your words, man, when you have the character of God, it pleases Him, and it really matters. But then the next thing he's going to talk about is, is kind of this idea of caring for the helpless, caring for those in distress. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And, <clears throat> you know, I think it's really important to name that James is not, he's not narrowing down religious practice of pure religion, simply is focusing on orphans and widows, Orphans and widows, absolutely. Like, that is a big part of it. But what he, what he gets at, he says, caring for orphans and widows, what? In their distress. What James is trying to name is this part of God's heart that cares for those who are hurting, that cares for those who are in distress. Orphans and widows in James' day, they found themselves in unwanted circumstances through no fault of their own, and without an advocate to come alongside of them, there was nothing they could do to get themselves out of the circumstance they were in. And it is in that moment that the compassion of God comes to light. What James is trying to paint is this picture of God's heart that is full of compassion, full of mercy. It's Psalm 145, verse 8, that says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. It's Psalm uh, 68, verse 5 through 6, that describes God as being a father to the fatherless. He, He is He defends the widows. He puts the lonely in families. This is this aspect of God's heart that James is appealing to. It's what he talked about in James 1.18 that we just read. Remember what it said? It says, he chose to give us birth. This idea that God saw you in your very worst moment, in your most helpless state. When you could not change yourself, when you could not beat that sin, when you could not make that relationship work, when you could not find hope in a world that felt so hopeless, when you could not find your way, God came to you of compassion and chose to give you new birth through his word of truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this heart of compassion that James is appealing to. And he begins to ask us, you know, what we have to ask is, man, who are those in distress in our lives? Who are those that are helpless, that find themselves in unwanted circumstances, that can't seem to get themselves out of it? Who has he put in front of you? Because the invitation here is to have the heart of God, that if we want to be people who are spiritual, people who are marked by true and pure religion, that we will care for those who are helpless. I think about a story, you know, uh, last year, this woman in our church emailed me, and She was asking for some help because there were these young girls that lived on her street that were neighbors to her that she began to see just out in the street, like in the afternoons, by themselves. And her heart kind of went out for them. She began to realize that, for whatever reason, their parents were very seldom home. And these girls were left to themselves. They are very young. And so she began to pray, like, Lord, how can I help them? How can I serve them? And, And one day she comes home, and she sees them and finds out they've been locked out of their house. The parents didn't come home till really late at night, and she had this opportunity just to sit with these girls, these young girls, to encourage them, to pray for them, to remind them that they matter in God's eyes. It was this moment where the compassion of God got a hold of her heart, and she didn't just walk idly by, but she was moved to do something with it. Guys, there's opportunities all around us, the people in our city that are hurting, those that have recently found themselves unemployed and they don't know how they're gonna pay their mortgage. You know, the single parents who are trying to take care of their kids and trying to work at the same time, and they need help and relief sometimes. Or it's the 400,000-plus foster kids across our nation that need somewhere to call home, someone that will show them that they matter, that they are loved by the God of gods and the King of kings. These are these moments, these invitations to be the people of God's compassion. It's what we're doing with YES. Why are we doing that? It's because there are families in our city that are impoverished and living in poverty, and God says, hey, will you be like me? Will you have my compassion for those who find themselves in unwanted circumstances? So he says, hey, pure religion reign in your tongue and your words. He says, help those who find themselves in despair and distress and feel helpless. And then the third thing he's gonna hit, actually, it's gonna hit us a little bit differently. And what he's gonna say is, he says, you know, pure religion is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and then he's gonna say, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Guys, this is really important that we catch this. See, James, he doesn't give us the convenience of religion simply being an action to work for justice or to take care of the oppressed, this external that's another external act that is good, that is beautiful, that is clearly pure and faultless. But if we're not careful, if it only becomes this outside thing, it can become a religion in and of itself. James goes, no, it doesn't just stop with your acts of mercy and justice. It's gotta come all the way down into your heart where you become someone who is unpolluted by the world. That your heart does not begin to look like the world around you, but looks more like the character of your Father in heaven. This is James 1.18. Remember, he says he, he chose to give you birth through the word of truth that you might be the first fruits. We are his kids, his offspring. We are to look like him, be full of his character. And yet the world around us is going to combat that at every single step. Guys, you know what's interesting is we often th- we will hear this phrase, "Don't be polluted by the world," and I think sometimes we only think of these big things that feel like pollution. We go, "Okay, don't be polluted by the world. I got it. I won't murder anyone. <laughs> I won't steal. I won't get myself to drunkenness or adultery or sexual immorality. You know, I won't do any of those things. I- I'll keep myself pure from the really big things. You know, but guys, this is not what James means by the world. Those are just part of it. You know, the reality is when he starts talking about the world, James has in mind the same things his contemporaries, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter had when they talked about the world, when they talked about the flesh. The world is this ungodly worldview that tries to separate humanity from their creator. The world is this view that tries to take humanity and to pull them apart from God Almighty. It's this human-centered belief that human values, human ingenuity, And human wisdom can solve all the problems of the world, and we don't need the values of God. We don't need the law of God. We don't fear the judgment of God. We don't need the wisdom of God. We've got this taken care of all on our own. Thank you very much. Guys, that's what lies at the center of this idea of the world. And this this world, this pollution of the world, has been an effect in, the crea- in creation since the fall of man. It's what we see all the way back in Genesis, that story of the Tower of Babel. Maybe you've heard that story, you know. Where the, these people are like, hey, we can accomplish anything. We'll build a tower to the heavens. It's this idea that we can do it without God. We don't need Him. We don't need Him at all. Now, our culture has adapted the world and this, this view that human humanity is at the center. We've adapted it and we've taken it all the way down. It's not just humanity at the center it's the individual self that's at the center. That that the individual self should be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, completely independent of God's ways, God's values, God's law. I should be the Lord of my own life and I should get to do what I want when I want to do it. Guys, this is the pollution of the world You know, we get trapped in thinking that the pollution of the world is found in these big things. Here's how we kind of imagine it. We go, hey, pollution of the world, it starts, you know, there's this big commitment to Jesus. Like, yes, Jesus, I'm yours, and I'm going to give my life to you. And then we think about the way the pollution of the world works. We think that, you know, the person gives their life to Jesus, and then there's like this tidal wave of world pollution. They make a bad choice, and they do the wrong thing. They engage in one of those big, nasty things that we talked about, and now they're polluted by the world. But in reality, it looks something more like this. A person gives their life to Jesus. There's this commitment, and then there are days, and there are weeks, and there are months, and there are years, and slowly across every moment, across every day, across every week and month, there's this erosion of the character of God as we are bombarded in our eyes in our ears, in the way that we think, with messages that seek to cut the character of God out from underneath them, with messages that seek to tell us that, hey, you deserve it, whatever you wanna do, your pleasure matters more, your desire matters more. These messages come at us every single day, that every single moment, We are told that we should get to do whatever we want, and before we know it, months and years after that person made that commitment, they still wear the name of Christian, and yet if you were to line their life up with the average non-Christian, you couldn't see a whole lot of difference. Guys, you see how the pollution of the world works. It's not a tidal wave. It's this small lapping away at the shore that slowly erodes the character of God and his people. And this is why James is so big on this. He says, guys, don't allow yourself to be polluted by the world. That will try to tell you that you're at the center. Human wisdom says self first, others second. Godly wisdom always says others first, God first, me last. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross. This is what he did. This was heavenly wisdom, that he should not value his life more than he loves you, but he would give up his life so that you could find life. This is heavenly wisdom. This is heavenly goodness, and the pollution of the world seeks to tear it away from us. Not a tidal wave, guys. You know, it's really interesting. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one has this weird phrase. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, hey, he says, hey, l- l- let's, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles and fix our eyes on Jesus. I'd never noticed this before, but that verse is so interesting because it says everything that hinders and the sin. Did you know there are things in this world that we wouldn't qualify as sin, but they can hinder you from living into the character of God? And what James is saying, he's saying, guys, we've got to be wary. Understand that in every single moment of your life, you are called to reflect the goodness, the character of God. This is what we're called to. Don't be polluted by the world. Jesus would say it this way. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy, be set apart, be different from the rest of the world. And don't allow the deception of the world to pollute your heart. And so this is what James is getting at. He's going, hey, if you want to be spiritual, if you want to be religious, it means you get a tight rein on your tongue. It means you you control that thing. You don't let it control you. Use your words to build up. It means that we care for those who are in distress. We care for those who are helpless. We have the compassion of God in our hearts. And then he's going to say, and we are not polluted by the world. And as we keep going through James, this last one, he's going to spend a lot of time, some uncomfortable time, talking about what we do with our own desires, what we do with our money, what we do with our time, what we do with our craving for pleasure. He's gonna talk about all those things as we keep going through this book. But the call is for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to be like our God in heaven, who chose to give us birth through his word of truth so that we may be the first fruits of him in all of creation. So here's what I want you to do this morning as we get ready for communion. I want you to just reflect together with whoever you're with. I want you to take a moment and just reflect on this teaching. Reflect on verse 26 and 27 and ask yourself, ask each other together in discussion, three simple questions. And these will be on the screen here in just a minute, but the questions are just, hey, what does this passage tell you about God? What does it tell you about God, about His character, about who He is, about what He wants from us? Second question, what does it, what does it say about you? What does this Passage say about you or to you? And then the third question is, what are you going to do? Let's not be those who hear and don't do. Let's talk about what we're going to do. So I'm praying a blessing over you, and then I encourage you, take a moment, pause the video where you're at if you need to, take communion, and discuss these questions together. Lord, we love you. We want to be like you. We want to be kids that bring joy to our Father's heart because we look like you. Shape our hearts this morning. We know we can't do this on our own, which is why we come to communion. We recognize we need Jesus. We need the body, the blood, the cross, the empty tomb, the return, the hope. We need you, Jesus. So will you minister to us as we commune with you and as we answer these questions with one another? It's in your great name that we pray, amen. Love you, Ethos. Let's take communion together.